something is wrong, and it's time to stand up. You are listening to the John Age Show. Trust no one. Trust no one. Trust no one. You found it. You're here. You're headlong down the runaway train that is the Anomic Age, and I'm your host, John H. Thankfully, back with you once again today in the not-so-wee hours of the PM. We got a great guest coming up. We got none other than Mr. William J. Federer. But before we get into that, please check out AnomicAge.com. Share those links, friends, family, loved ones, and enemies. From there, you can find the free newsletter, the free iPhone app, the free Android app. Every single show we've ever done, the video and the audio, is all there at anomicage.com. If you are so inclined, check out paypal.me forward slash anomicage, patreon.com forward slash anomicage as well. As well, we've got the new lightning link down there, so you can you can shoot me some little uh, Bitcoin fragments, I guess is how it works, as uh, best described. But nevertheless, all that and so much more can be found at anomicage.com. So without further ado... Let's uh, introduce our guest a bit. William J. Federer is a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch, Inc., a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. Bill's American Minute radio feature is broadcast daily across America and the Internet. His faith in history... Television airs on TCT Network on stations across America via DirecTV. Best find him at AmericanMinute.com. That link's going to be showing up on your screen momentarily. Thank you so much, Bill, for being with us today. Hey, John. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I'm, I'm so happy to have you on. Uh, definitely one of those guests that I've always looked forward to talking to because your, your breadth of knowledge, I mean, specifically history, but... Christianity, Muslim, so much we can get into today for sure. Um, the topic at hand, I suppose, like the the terror de jour, they've got us all freaked out and supposedly afraid of of Ukraine. I don't know if it's if it's all pomp and circumstance with the saber rattling, or if it's a an actual danger from Russia. I don't know. Russia seems to be. Uh, having a whole lot of grace when it comes to America right now. They haven't uh, thrown any missiles our way so far, but we sort of talked a little bit pre-show. This whole thing, uh, you know, to quote old Solomon, nothing new under the sun. They sort of keep rolling out the same uh, rinse and repeat. Let's get everybody afraid of the newest uh, terror du jour so we can roll them into another war. But um, nothing new under the sun. What is it looking like from your perspective, sir? Well, I tell people that... History is not prophetic, but it is predictive. So past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. People say history repeats itself. Really, human nature repeats itself, and history is just the record of that. And so I like to start with the big picture and then see some patterns and then get predictive and maybe zoom into the present. So the big picture is that the most common form of government in all the world's history is kings, from the beginning of the invention of writing, Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley, today that's Iraq, mm-hmm. around 3300 or so BC is when writing was invented. 
uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist in his Cosmos TV series, uh, stood in the desert and he said, it was here between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers 5,000 years ago that we learned how to write. And then he talks about how writing was important in the accumulation of knowledge so that we could become smarter and so forth. But 5,000 years ago, that's around 3,000 or so BC. And so we see Nimrod, Tower of Babel, 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs, 5,000 years of Chinese emperors, Indian maharajas, king of Assyria, king of Babylon, king of Persia, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Tilden. And as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger because with military advancements, kings can kill more people. Mm-hmm. So instead of Cain killing Abel with a rock, they can kill with bronze weapons or iron weapons or phalanx spears or scimitar swords or gunpowder. The weapon improves, but it's that same fallen nature of, of Cain killing Abel. And then with technology, kings can track more people. I mean, Augustus Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was called the census. If he could have had 5G and cell phones and cameras, he would have tracked people that way. And, and so as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger until the king of England was the biggest. He was a globalist. The sun never set on the British Empire, India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and America. Mm-hmm. And America's founders decided we did not like we did not like a globalist king controlling us. And so we broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king, right? So kings have subjects who are subjected to the king's will. They rule through mandates and fear. Democracies and republics have citizens. The word citizen means co-ruler, co-king. And so... Uh, that's the the big picture. And if any of these kings hadn't have died off, any one of them would have been happy to keep killing and conquer the world. I mean, Genghis Khan in the 1200s kills from Korea to Hungary, kills 30 million people. If he hadn't have died, he'd have been kept on. Right? Uh, and then you, you can go on and on and, and see the examples. Uh, you see a little bit of a tweak when it comes to um, the 1800s. There's a uh, strategist, a military, uh, you know, strategist named Clauwitz in Europe. And he said, what's the purpose of war? The purpose of war is to force your enemy to submit to your will. And so you're out there killing their bodies with the most advanced weapons. Why? Well, because their mind is loyal to the other side. Well, what if you could just mess with their mind, get them to be disloyal to their side, get them to be demoralized, get them into fear, get them into confusion. And so this launched something called psychological warfare, cognitive warfare. We did it during World War II, dropping pamphlets down on the German town saying your side is already lost. Your boss just hasn't told you yet. And the Japanese did it to us with Tokyo Rose, this woman with a seductive voice saying, you Americans are doing all these terrible things and demoralizing our guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during the Cold War, these tactics are perfected even more. Uh, where you would have the uh, countries aligning with the Soviet Union and the countries aligning with the West. And each side would want to pull people into their sphere of influence. And so a typical strategy would be for the KGB to come into a country and uh, begin to get control of the media. And then they would do what's called critical theory, where you divide the country into groups and call some victims, others oppressors, haves and have not, have not. You pit them against each other until it breaks out with violence. And then since you control the media through bribes and threats, you blame the leader of the country for all the problems. And you stir up the sentiment of the people to blame the leader. And once the public is so in fear because of the crises and blaming this leader so much, that's when you do your coup or your rigged election and you replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. Yeah, KGB did it. We did it. I mean, in 1953... Iran had a leader named Mazadek who was siding with the Soviet Union. And we 
And the problem was he nationalized the Iranian oil industry. But um, in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. Mm -hmm. And so when Iran seized all the oil assets, Britain was having a sudden oil shortage. And they appealed to Eisenhower, who approved the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leaders, Operation Ajax. And the CIA operative on the ground is Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. And he goes to Tehran, organizes mobsters and gangsters. They attack, uh, you know, mosques and they co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame Mossadegh for all of the problems. And the country gets stirred up enough because of the violence and they hate him enough. That's when they went in and put Mossadegh under house arrest. They had cultivated weak links in the military to do it. And then they lock him away for the rest of his life where he dies. And they replaced him with the Shah, who loved America because we put him in power. And, and But these tactics were the... KGB supported Yasser Arafat to start the PLO and sow division in the Middle East and uh, helped Castro to sow division, take over Cuba and uh, Brezhnev Khrushchev Khrushchev helping um, uh, the FARC in Colombia with Che Guevara and ELN in Bolivia with Che Guevara. And so these tactics have been perfected for 70 years. The only difference this time around is we're seeing them take place on our own soil. Um, But this idea you go into a country, you do critical theory, break them into groups, pit them against each other. It's sort of like introducing an autoimmune disease into the body politic. Hmm. I mean, what's an autoimmune disease? It's where your own immune system starts attacking your own organs. On the inside of you, you have a war. Even Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, Lincoln quoted that in his famous speech, a house divided cannot stand. And so how do you destroy a marriage? So division. How do you destroy a family? So division. How do you destroy a church? So division. How do you destroy a country? So division. And, um, you know, there's a, a quote from FDR where he says, remember the Nazi technique, pit race against race, religion against religion. Um, he says the divide and conquer. And so that's the typical strategy. Um, so anyway, so that's the big picture uh, of what we see happening. We see uh, this idea of um, wanting to seize power. And, um, and so, uh, so the most common form of government in world history is kings. Democracies and republics are attempts to take the power of a king and give it to the people. And what's the difference between a democracy and a republic? Well, demos means people, krasi means rule. So in a democracy, the people rule. The word has two meanings. One is a general reference to a popular government where people are involved. And that use became uh, common during the Cold War, like Harry S. Truman's inaugural address, where he's calling democracy. People have a say and communism. The people don't have a say. And so um, but as far as an actual functioning form of government, a pure democracy, every citizen has to be at every meeting every day to talk about every issue. And so Athens had 6,000 citizens. Everybody had to be at the market, the Agora, every day. And it was very time-consuming. You didn't have time for anything else. And and people could be swayed uh, by sentiments, and that's where you could whip them into a mob frenzy and so forth. A republic is where you take care of your family and your farm, and you have someone in your place that goes to the market every day. They are your representative. You're still in charge. You're just ruling through representatives. And since it's one step removed from the people, you have a little time 
period for emotions to cool down. And so republics are not as susceptible to this mob frenzy. Uh, but in America, we have a constitutional republic uh, with rights from a creator. And so the it's not just the representatives voting, it's the representatives are having to uh, guarantee to the people their creator-given rights. Uh, all of that together I call a, a seed, like a genetically engineered seed. A lot of brilliant people, a lot of centuries developing our form of government, but what do you do with seeds? You plant it in soil. And then the mm -hmm. question is, does, does the type of soil you plant a seed in have any relation to the harvest? I mean, if you take the best Absolutely. genetically engineered seed and you plant it in a gravel parking lot or in a sandy beach with salt water, I mean, or in a nice fertile soil. And so the seed of a democratically elected constitutional republic worked in America because we had a predominantly Judeo-Christian soil. Uh, at the time of the founding, 98% of the country was Protestant, only 1% Catholic and a tenth of a percent Jewish. Middle 1800s, you had an Irish potato famine, millions of Irish Catholics came to America, and it broadened from uh, the Catholic being 1% to 20%. Mm. And then the persecution of Jews in Bavaria, and many come across and they go from a tenth of a percent to 2%. But even in 1965, 93% of Americans identified themselves as Christian, 69% Protestant, 25% or so Catholic, and there were 3% Jewish. So we had a seed, a democratically elected constitutional republic, planted in a soil that was Judeo-Christian, which can be summed up in there is a creator who gives you God-given rights, and this creator is not a respecter of persons. And so everybody's equal. But you take this seed, and you get rid of Saddam Hussein, and you plant this seed over in Iraq, and in one election cycle, they voted Sharia law where it's the death penalty to leave Islam and you can have four wives and beat them. And we, we scratch our heads thinking, what's wrong with the seed? Nothing. You just planted it in an Islamic soil, which has no concept of equality. Women are not equal to men. Infidels are not equal to Muslims. Uh, the Berlin Wall went down, you know, in 19, early 1990s, and uh, we helped them set up republics and, and so forth. Well, they've eventually got taken over by the black market, the mafia, the organized crime. And we scratch our heads thinking, why didn't the seed have the same harvest? Because they had 70 years of atheism plowed into their soil. And um, and then communist countries where your worth is dependent on your usefulness to the state. Right. But in America, the seed worked. So political science classes always leave that out. They just focus on, oh, we got the three branches of government, the bill starts here and it goes there and the, and the Supreme Court, this, that, and the other, but they, they leave out the soil. What type of belief system, basic beliefs do the population have? Um, so, and I think uh, that's something so crucial because, I mean, we can look at this so many different ways and, and so much of this is, is symptoms of the disease, but I think it comes down to the good versus evil and the, the Christendom being that, I mean, pun intended, that saving grace of America, and they're doing everything. I mean, the quote-unquote they, the proverbial they, is doing everything they can to get us to turn from God and get us to to renounce Christendom. And, I mean, it's been an assault for probably a century, easily decades, on just that Christen, Christendom, that faith, trying to get gradually more and more people to say, oh, we don't need God. We don't need that old book. We're fine. We're, we're a democracy after all. We're not a republic, you know. Well, even Plato, 380 B.C., uh, in his uh, democracy, 
um, you know, he lived during a democracy, but he wrote a book called Republic. And um, mm-hmm. but he talked about how uh, basically self-government only works if the, if the people have virtue. But he said people really don't have virtue because if, if you give them a choice of giving up their life or giving up their virtue, they'll always give up their virtue to save their life. So it's just a matter of time till this this satellite, the gravity pulls it down to earth and it crashes. Ancient Israel had a republic from around 1400 B.C. to around 8000 B.C. before King Saul. And it worked a little bit longer because there was a big magnet in the sky called God. And you were virtuous because you were accountable to this God. Right. And so uh, I make it really clear and simple, rather, in my presentations. Imagine a line and one side is total government and the other side is no government. Total government power gravitates into the hands of fewer and fewer people. So finally, one person, a dictator who rules through fear. The other side is no government. Uh, That would be anarchy unless the people are taught virtue, morals. And so if you think of it as a sliding scale, right? So uh, you have the, the less external restraints, the more internal restraints. So, it's a, so you know, if you were imagine like a, one of those graphs, right? And so yeah. as, you're, as you're getting rid of internal, external restraints, you're going more toward no government, uh, you have to have this rising line that there's more internal morals. And so in ancient Israel's case, every single person was taught the law. And then the big question is, why would you follow it? Well, they taught that there was a God who was watching everyone. He wants you to be fair and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know, you can get away with it. And then you think, uh, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. Mm-hmm. If everybody in the country really believes this, you can maintain complete order with no police. And so that's what America's colonial founders look back to as the model. And so that's why they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. They realized that if we were going to be a government without a king, the people need to have morals and virtue. And what's going to motivate them to follow these morals is their accountability to a God who is watching everyone, wants you to be fair, is going to hold you accountable in the future. So when we say it's one nation under God, it's more than just a nice little tip of the hat. It's the awareness that there is a God. He's not a respecter of persons. He wants us to be fair. He's watching. He's going to hold us accountable in the future that motivates us to have self-government so we can maintain order. But if you get rid of this God and you get rid of these rules, uh, you're going to have uh, the it's like taking a bobber off a fishing line and the lead weight is going to hit the bottom of the lake. (laughs) It's like you take off morals. Human nature is selfish and you're going to see robbing and stealing and killing and you're going to teach kids. There's no God. There's no right and wrong. You don't even know what sex you are anymore. It can change every day. You can kill the baby in the womb and you shove these kids out on the street and they're like, hey, I feel like killing somebody today. It's like, I feel like taking your car. I feel like batting you over the head with a baseball bat. It's like, how can you tell them that's wrong when you just got done telling them there are no morals, there are no guidelines. It's just whatever you feel like doing. <laughs> and, um, but yet, but actually, so those that want to have a dictatorship want to create domestic crises because when there's domestic crises and insecurity, people panic and they want somebody to come along and fix it. And so, uh, so I talk about how the most common form of governments, kings, democracies, and republics are takes attempts to take the power of the king, give it to the people. But what if the king wants the power back? Does he just ask for it? People aren't in a hurry to give up. So there's two ways that the king can take power back: fear. And free stuff. Fear is 
you get the people into a scenario where uh, they're in fear, uh, whether it's a lawless mob like Antifa, like BLM, like uh, autonomous zones in Seattle where there's defund the police and lawlessness. And then everybody says, government, please come in and restore order. And the government's like, okay, we're glad you asked. We're going to come away and take away all your freedoms yeah, and we'll restore are. order. But when the dust settles, you're back to a, a totalitarian government. And the other is free stuff. The government's so nice. They're offering to give you free money and free food and free college education, free, free, free. And But then you get dependent on it. And then they say, oh, you, you want some more free stuff? You're going to incrementally have to give up your individual freedom. It's like a drug dealer takes over a neighborhood two ways. That's right. Come the first guns, few samples are free. Fear. Yeah, uh, or the second he gives away the free drugs so you get hooked. And um, anyway, so so the, the fear and free stuff, uh, it's like a hunter catches animals through guns or with bait. Guns is more aggressive. Bait is this luring. Uh, you're, you're drawing upon the lust of the animal for that food, and then you capture them in that. And so, um, uh, and so, so in my book on socialism, I cover these. Uh, in depth, but the one that maybe I thought I'd touch on today is how do you create an atmosphere of fear intentionally so that people nationally and even globally panic and begin to surrender their freedoms to the government, to a globalist government. And, um, uh, and so some of it is just sort of happens naturally. Um, and you know, they're, Israel's being invaded. They all go to Gideon and they say, hey, you know, you be our king, right, or, or something like that. It, it's a natural response. But the other is the intentional creating of crises and discord for the political purpose of usurping power, again, locally, nationally, and globally. And if you'd like, I can get into some examples. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what we've been seeing. I mean, you could conservatively say since 9-11, but then you could look at Oklahoma City bombing and all this other mess before that. It's all sort of ramping up the the fear faucet. I think I did a show uh, a couple couple shows back talking about the just open up the fear faucet. We've got COVID. We've got the Ukraine. We've got uh, illegal immigrants. We've got fentanyl. we got the Muslim. I mean, it's it's all over the place, but I think it's, it's all ratcheting up towards those same ends. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I always like to include the Bible references. Please so do. So the, the word devil in Greek is diabolos, which means to divide, to separate, to divide. And so here's mm. the devil dividing heaven. I mean, imagine being in heaven. Uh, there, for there to be unity and peace in heaven, there has to be only one will. The moment there's two wills, there's division. There's two will, And since they're not the same will, they're going to come into conflict. There's going to be war in heaven. Mm-hmm. And Satan said, I will be like the most high. I will put my throat. So Satan's got his will. So now we have two wills. And he, of course, the devil's cast out. So there's division in heaven. And But he goes into the garden and he sows division. He gets Adam to blame Eve and he gets Cain to kill Abel. And, and um, you know, there's different stories. One was Abimelech. I mentioned Gideon. He defeats 100,000 Midianites. And so there's no threat to Israel. But Gideon has an illegitimate son named Abimelech who wants power. And so he goes to a town called Shechem and he says, is it better for you that the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your flesh and your bone. Hmm. And the men of Shechem said, well, we got to vote for Gideon. He's our brother. So forget whether or not he's good at ruling. He's just one of us. So it's an identity politics. It's the first 
example of critical race theory. Yeah, it's um, tribalism again. And, uh, and so then they go to the temple of Balbarith, the city treasury, and they take money to hire rioters, Antifa, BLM type. This is a, and they gave him three score and 10 pieces of silver out of the house of Balbarith, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons, which followed him to do violence and to kill all his half-brothers, the sons of Gideon. And then the Menesheka made Abimelech king. So you have a country that's completely at peace, no enemies, and somebody internally sows division based on a, a fleshly relationship, right? And Man. then hires rioters to commit instability and division in rioting, and then the confusion seizes power. And um, you have another example with Machiavelli. So 500 years ago, Italy was a bunch of city-states. Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they always fought. And Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So his end was good. And so it's this concept that the ends justifies the means. And so it's okay for this prince to lie, cheat, steal, if his goal is to unify Italy and stop the infighting. And so Machiavelli writes a, big, a book called The Prince. And uh, so if a prince wants to conquer a city, and the city does not want to be conquered, it would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals, like Abimelech did, hires rioters, BLM, Antifa people, to create crisis and smash things and set things on fire, the people will cry out for help, and the prince will come in and get rid of the very criminals he bribed to create the mess. Nobody will know the better for it, and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire. Then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. And so we go from Italy to uh, a couple of years later, you got Germany, a couple of centuries later, rather. And so in the early 1800s, Germany was not Germany. It was a bunch of kingdoms, Saxony, Bavaria, Prussia. And they fought. And um, this guy named Hegel more or less thought like Machiavelli. Gee, if one prince could control all these German states, uh, it would be bring up peace. So he uh, taught at the University of Berlin. One of his students is Karl Marx. But Hegel came up with a, a dialectic. It's a triangle. And so it's taking Machiavelli and Abimelech and more or less making an equation out of it. And so one corner is a thesis. The opposite corner is an anti thesis or antithesis and the top corner is a synthesis it sounds complicated but it's not mm-hmm. in other words you start off with the status quo everybody's getting along the way they have for a long time you have to create discord you have to create division you have to you have to get people to identify with different groups and pit the groups against each other you got to get an autoimmune disease going and once there's this unrest and this rioting, then everybody begs for someone to come in to restore order, and they're willing to give up their freedoms. And yeah, order is restored, but when the dust settles, you've, you've given up your freedom. And then in this dialectic model, once you get to that synthesis, they create another antithesis, another crisis that's real bad. And then everybody surrenders some more of their freedoms to settle for an answer that's just half as bad. Then they create another problem that's real bad. And then everybody's willing to give up some more of their freedoms to settle for an answer that's just half as bad. And each time they settle, it goes from individual control of their lives to state control. And uh, 
And so now we, we can go more of on a global level. And um, I'm, I'm not sure how I'm doing time-wise, if you want me to keep going. Are you going. doing fine time-wise? We're at uh, 28 minutes. So we look at the British Empire became the biggest empire on planet Earth. How did they get so big? Did they just go into a country and say, hi, we're here to be the biggest empire on the planet? Well, let's look at India. So in 1714, the British landed in Bengal and opened a trading post that turned into a trading fort that turned into them having guns and then giving some guns to one kingdom and some guns to another kingdom and then sowing division, division, separate, uh, getting pitting them against each other, stirring up ancient animosities. And then when they broke out into warfare and fighting and bloodied each other up and weakened each other, then the British would come in to restore order and take control of both kingdoms. And they did this again and again and again until they took over all of India, a quarter of the world's population. And they tried doing it in America during the revolution. They went, uh, General Johnny Burgoyne, British general, landed in Canada, meets with the Mohawk Indians and promises them money for scalps. Hmm. And so the British were stirring up the Indians to attack the Americans. Hmm. It was so bad it was listed in our Declaration of Independence. The king has excited domestic insurrection among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. So here you have settlers, Americans were sort of getting along. British come into the Indians and stir them up to attack. And uh, they did it again at Fort Mims, Alabama. British controlled Pensacola during the War of 1812. Just north was Fort Mims and the Red Stick Creek Indians. Hmm. And the British promised them money for scalps. And so the Indians captured Fort Mims and then scalped 500 people. And uh, so um, this idea of going in, breaking people into groups, pitting the groups against each other for the purpose of destabilizing the country so that everybody cries out for someone to come in with enough power to restore order. uh, This is called critical theory. And uh, Karl Marx said, okay, how do you create a problem that's real bad? Um, You break people into subgroups and then pit the subgroups against each other. Uh, So at first it was economic subgroups, proletariat versus the bourgeois, the working class versus the business owners, right? The poor versus the rich. And then it was religious. Uh, They'd organize the Sunni against the Shia or the Orthodox. And then they would do it uh, ethnically, the Bosnians and Croats and Serbs and and then racially, right? The blacks and the whites. And uh, you look at the Congo and Rwanda, the people there saw themselves as one. But the Belgian and German colonizers measured them and their features. And they said, you're a Hutu, you're a Tutsi. And they then pitted them against each other until they began to genocide each other. And then the colonizing power had an excuse to come in and take over the whole thing. And uh, so this tactic of breaking people into groups, uh, critical theory, and then pitting the groups against each other to destabilize the country so that everybody feels insecure and they beg the government to come in and restore order. And the government says, I'm glad you asked. We'll restore order. We're just going to take away all your freedoms and your guns and everything in the process. And so when you read the quote from Patrice Cullors, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter, and she said, we are trained Marxists. Mm-hmm. 
They're trained in breaking people into groups, pitting them against each other until there's rioting, and then the government has an excuse to take away everybody's freedoms in the process. And Castro even said the revolution needs the enemy. In other words, you can't stir up your people fight against, against okay. an invisible enemy um, because you can't get them into fear. You have to have an enemy that you can portray as very bad to get people into a sufficient level of fear where they're willing to give up their freedoms. So Castro said the revolutionary needs the enemy. The revolutionary needs his antithesis, which is the counter-revolutionary. And if enemies were lacking, they had to be fabricated. So if there's no enemy, you have to create an enemy, maybe like a white supremacist or like a, a nationalist or a dominionist, or you make something out of nothing that really doesn't exist, but you, you create this boogeyman, right? Why? Because you have to get people into fear because you, you need an excuse to take away people's freedoms. And if there's no enemy, uh, but then you graduate from a local level to a national and an international level, you need an international enemy. Uh, climate change, an international enemy. Um, remember, um, for those not familiar, uh, Jimmy Carter abandoned the, the Shah in Iran and the Ayatollah takes over. Hmm. And the Ayatollah uh, has Iran go to war with Iraq. And we certainly don't want Iraq to win. And so Ronald Reagan, Donald Rumsfeld, we are arming and training and supplying stuff to Saddam Hussein as our ally against the Ayatollah. And uh, then uh, after Reagan is out, we see uh, more or less there are some signals given that, you know, wouldn't be a big deal if Iraq takes Kuwait. And as soon as he does, then George H.W. Bush gets the whole world together and says, yeah, this is terrible, but out of it will come a new world order. Mm hmm. And then, you know, you look at what's happening in Ukraine, right? If you remember right past that, well, let's go a little bit earlier. So it's very Ukraine, familiar to this whole Ukraine narrative. Yeah, Ukraine was trying to clean up their country. And Biden goes over there and says, unless you fire this one guy that's investigating my son, you are not going to get any aid from America. So he extorts Ukraine to get rid of uh, a law abiding leader and replace him with a puppet. Now, for those not, that are not familiar with how foreign aid works, it's uh, money laundering. So whenever you see billions of dollars going to third world countries to fight climate change, to fight whatever, to fight, it's going to the corrupt leaders in those countries. Hmm. They get to keep a little of it and live like a king, and the rest of it they funnel back to the corrupt politicians in America that gave them the money. So uh, when Obama was in, Hillary Clinton was the secretary of state and there were billions of dollars of aid given to Ukraine. Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe. <laughs> Guess what the number one country was that gave money to the Clinton Foundation? Ukraine. Pretty sure I know. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the poorest country in Europe giving billions, millions of dollars to the Clinton. Where do they get the money from? The U.S. government, the U.S. government giving aid to Ukraine, and then they turn around and funnel it back. Uh, I talked to Howard Phillips, and he used to, you know, um, he worked in the administration, I think, under Nixon, but then he was really involved in conservative circles, and he was really fighting the giveaway of the Panama Canal. Mm 
mm-hmm. because he says basically a bunch of banks lent money to Panama and they couldn't pay it back. And so Jimmy Carter orchestrated the giving away of the canal. And so when the U.S. would subsidize the canal zone and pay back the banks. And Howard Phillips says the money doesn't even leave America. It doesn't even go to Panama and back. It just goes from the U.S. government to the bank that lent Panama the money. Um, so whenever you see, uh, you remember Haiti, earthquake. Hundreds of millions of dollars went to Haiti relief, but it went to the Clinton Foundation. Yeah. You know how much of it actually went to the Haitian people? Like almost none of it. It just went to some corrupt politicians in Haiti that funneled it right back into the Clinton Foundation. Right. And so. Um, uh, so you you need an international crisis. But but here we look at um, this sudden switch from Saddam being our ally to Saddam being our enemy. Let's look at um, during the Bosnian War, Bill Clinton was funneling was Operation Brute Force, was funneling arms to Iran to funnel to the Bosnian Muslims who were fighting the Serbian Christians. And he got it, this war going. Some think that he did it to distract from the Monica Lewinsky trial and so forth. Um, but uh, the, uh, the big one is the U.S. government in 1979 during the Soviet-Afghanistan war, Soviet-Afghan war. The CIA gave millions of dollars to the Taliban, armed the Taliban, trained the Taliban to fight the Soviets. And it was such, it was the largest covert operation up to this point. And it was so big that Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts did a movie on it called Charlie Wilson's War. And Sylvester Stallone did a movie on it called Rambo Three. <laughs> this is our CIA arming and training who the Taliban. And so, for us to think the Taliban, which we armed and trained, could surprise us and take Afghanistan, nobody believes that, right? And so, I've actually talked to military personnel that said, as soon as our planes were leaving Afghanistan, Chinese planes were flying in. Mm-hmm. I talked to military guys that. After their term of service, they would go back over there and do security work for American aligned assets like mining interests and power plants and water facilities. And so these would be, uh, you know, former American soldiers doing security work for these things. They're, guess what? They're guarding the same places. Yeah. But now they're just doing it for China. Okay, and so China wanted Afghanistan because of the rare earth metals for batteries. And so here you have the Biden administration, the, the military under you know, Milley, whatever, and they just 20 years worth of young men and women losing life and limb. And it's just given to China. And, um, and, and so what we saw is under the Obama-Biden administration, there was this supporting of Islamic terrorists in, in China. Trump disrupted their plan, but, but uh, Biden want, wanted to revert back to it. I know you mentioned the Panama Canal, but but China was also taking uh, many U.S. ports, especially the West Coast ports, in the early '90s as well. I mean, we're just here have some prime real estate U.S. ports. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Hutchison Wampoa is like this enormous company that has been busily buying up strategic uh, ports around the world and choke points when it comes to ocean traffic. And um, uh, and so that's another thing that they've been playing. You know, our country is known for the popular game of uh, cards, gambling. 
Mm-hmm. But China's popular game is Go, G-O, and it's sort of like chess uh, or Chinese checkers. And But it's this strategy game of controlling the entire board with the fewest little pieces possible. Hmm. And so it thinks very much in how to control things. And uh, sort of a little trivia on the side note, um, they had the champ, Chinese champion of Go playing a computer. Hmm. And this was like you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the Chinese uh, champion won. But then they reprogrammed the computer and then, you know, got a little closer, a little closer until finally, especially with these quantum computers, the computer won. It did the AI learning. It could learn and everything. And so this uh, idea is that the Chinese mindset is strategic. It's long term. It's getting these different areas. And now you have um, um, different financial interests that are in favor of this. So BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard are the three largest uh, asset management companies started 10 some odd years ago where they'd invest in everything on the stock market. And as the gradual uh, stock market goes up, your investment would go up and it would be secure. Uh, So now they control trillions of dollars and they're, most people don't go to a stockholder meeting, so you check the proxy box. And so they'll show up at the stockholder meeting for Exxon or Target or one of them, and they'll basically dictate you're going to be more diverse, more LGBT, more this and that, and pro-China. Hmm. And um, uh, and so this is, uh, you know, we've thought of Pepsi and Coke as competitors. Uh, who owns them? Well, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. We thought of Nestle and General Mills as competitors. Who owns them? Well, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. Eighty percent of the S and P five hundred companies controlling interests are owned by BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. They own the media companies, the pharmaceutical companies, the, the I mean, transportation companies, it's about everything. And um, and they're all pro-China and pro-globalists. And uh, so anyway, I thought I'd just come and give a little encouragement to to your viewers. And now, uh, but but I, I keep coming back to. Um, for me, uh, I gain encouragement from looking at things from a spiritual point of view, and that's uh, one of the stories we love best in the Bible. It's where things look hopeless. Um, Moses, David, Gideon, you know, fan up the Pharaoh and Goliath. And, and so God loves to use little people who are small in their own eyes, but big in faith and courage to stand up and say, not during my lifetime. And so we're only responsible for us being the period that we're alive for. So... Uh, so if we can push it back, um, then we can maybe gain gain time. And, and there's enough Bible examples. Um, it's, you know, Ezekiel, Jeremiah says, if I pronounce judgment on a country and they repent, I'll not judge the country. It's sort of like a, a guided missile and you're a magnet and it's being drawn towards you. But the moment you repent, you repent, it's like it the you change the polarity (laughs) and it repels instead of attracts. And so if we repent as a nation, then we can, you know, I believe uh, when um, Manasseh was a wicked king of Judah, sacrificing kids to Moloch and the prophets come to him and tell him it's over. God's fed up. And, uh, but he has a grandson named Josiah and he's just a teenager and tells us, them to clean out the temple that his granddad had trashed and they come out with a scroll the law of god they read it to this young king he rips his garments and repents and um 
sends to a prophetess in town named Holda, the wife of the king's tailor. And she says, tell the king that judgment's going to come, but not during his lifetime because he repented. And so he had a big Passover and sent the Levites out to teach the law. And so there's a 31-year reprieve. Now, when he dies, he goes down the drain real fast, and the judgment comes, and they're taken to Babylon. But it was this sort of reprieve. And, and so I'm sort of praying for a Josiah generation that if we rend our hearts and repent, then God will give us time. And uh, but, but again, when you study history, you see the trends. You see the um, as technology improves and weapons improves, the same human nature that's uh, you know, Jesus says wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. Uh, one way of looking at it is the spiritual descendants of Cain are always trying to kill the spiritual descendants of Abel. <laughs> that's right? a good Abel way to look at it. The lamb. Um, but at some point, it's going to max out on a global level. And um, uh, but uh, I believe that the good Lord decides when each person's going to take their turn. Um, you know, I mean, He chose for us to be created and born and put on the earth at this time period, and so. Um, we, if we let him use us, then uh, good things and great things will happen. So that's a great way to look at it. I think that's the that's our only salvation at this point. It, it scares me a lot that that so much of the Bible has been just like co opted, where they've sort of they've gotten people to believe that it's all relative. Uh, they push this relativity, I think, throughout history and throughout our culture too, where it's all relative and we shouldn't judge anybody and it's all going to be okay. Just uh, it, it's your truth. Just do your thing, and it'll as long as you're happy, it'll be okay. I think that's sort of uh, something that causes me a lot of concern sometimes. I think that's sort of the the mantra of our culture now, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Well, I um, what uh, one of the things I look at is every every generation is at a crisis. Yeah, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Spanish flu, World War One, World. I mean, and each crisis to that generation is extremely serious. Uh, and if we get through this crisis, I pretty well think there'll be another one. If we get through that crisis, there'll be, a, it's human nature, right? And so um, so part of it is we want to turn it around. The other part of it is why would God allow there to be crises? And I think the crisis is pushing us to a deciding making moment. And, um, you know, the Bible says that we're the bride of Christ. And so every romance novel hall, Hallmark movie builds up to this decision-making moment where there's a forsaking of all others and choosing the one, right? And so I think we're being pushed to a decision-making moment. Are we going to go with the all others and care about, oh, what are people going to post about me? What are they going to say about me? Or say, look, I only care what Jesus, I'm going to die someday and I'm going to face God. And all I care about is what God says about me, right? And, um, and so when we get to that deciding-making moment, um, and I think we're, the world is being pushed to that. That's, that's spot on. That's a beautiful way to leave it, I think. we got to either choose the good or the evil, the, the dark or the light, and that's it. So, um, so it's an exciting time to be alive. You know, I look at it from, okay, let's say you're dead and you're in heaven and you're sitting around the table, right? So, it's, you know, Jesus said, my father's house had many mansions. So imagine if, if Moses invites you over. And you're, you know, there with, you know, Gideon, David, and it's like, wow, Gideon, tell me your story. David, tell me your story. Goliath, did Moses, tell, and then they're all going to look at you and say, okay, it's your turn. Tell us your story. Yeah. What was going on down on earth? When it was your turn to be down there? What were they saying about God or the baby that the Lord knew? What, what did you do when the whole world was against you? You know, are you going to say, oh, you know, I threw a couple bucks in the offering bucket or something. No, so like, let me tell you, man, it looked really bad, and I just couldn't sit back anymore. And I said, God, use me to make a difference. 
And so, so that's our turn. So that's true. I think that's another thing often kind of lost in the history is, is so many of these great figures didn't have the best ending. I mean, they fought the good fight right up until the end. And then, you know, Paul was executed or, you know, <laughs> all these different people. It, it worked out great until that final moment, but they still did what was right. And I think that's where we got to stand as well. We got to do what's right, even in the face of, of all this adversity and sort of knowing that it may not end uh, with the Hallmark movie ending. You know? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things when you study history, you look back. And then you, but you can't help at some point, look forward, you look yeah. forward to your posterity. What are you leaving there? But also you look forward to the end, right? So we, so the idea is why did God create us in the first place? And, um, so I wrote a new book called believe, and it sort of looks at it all from God's point of view. And it's this idea that, that God made everything. He's existed for eternity. There's never been a time when he hasn't existed. And so, um, you look at the Hubble telescope, they found us, they looked at a spot in the sky the size of a grain of sand uh, back in 2003. Nothing there, nothing there. And they, uh, after 11 days, they developed the images. In that spot was 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. And because light travels in waves with red being the slowest, so they saw the red shift, which means these galaxies are moving away from us. They now estimate the observable universe is 93 billion light years across. And get this still expanding at the speed of light. Man. And the largest star they found is Stevenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. So large, if you were to place it in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine one single star? I mean, and could you imagine a being that can create this? That's what could you possibly offer this God? <laughs> really nothing. But then you think, wait a second, what's a galaxy? Anyway, it's a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, vaporized rocks, mold. A rock cannot love you. So at some time in eternity past, God said, been there, done that. I can make everything. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Mm -hmm. And now it gets interesting because love, by definition, must be voluntary. So in the framework of everything he controls, time, matter, space, energy, he created one little thing he doesn't control, your will. I mean, they could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the very reason he made you different than everything else. And he doesn't need your love. He's not incomplete in any way. And your love completes. He's complete all by himself. He doesn't need your love, but he wants it. That's Parents okay. don't need the love of their children, but they want it. And he created uh, light. And, Einstein, and light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And Einstein's theory of relativity is the closer you can travel approaching the speed of light for you, time slows down. And theoretically, if you could travel the speed of light for you, time would stand still. Well, God created light. He's obviously faster than light. So for God, time effectively stands still. It's hard for us to comprehend. But there is a verse that says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as a day. So imagine experiencing a day as if it was a... So in other words, we're moving in extreme slow motion compared to God. God exists in the ever-present now. I am that I am. And so for him to create our reality, he sort of had to create a little bubble where everything moves in slow motion. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, um, so there's billions of people on the earth and we all make our little free will decisions. But since he's outside of time, he can readjust every atom in the universe before things go to the next frame <laughs> so that his will is going to take place. So it's our free will inside the context of his sovereign will. Anyway, so, so we're created as free will beings Second thing is he has to hide himself behind his creation because if he ever revealed himself in all of his universe creating omnipotent power, 
brighter than a trillion suns, our response will be immediate and instinctive. If we didn't melt, it would be like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. I fell at his feet is dead. Mm. I mean, you wouldn't even think about it. In the face of such power, you just bam down. And God's like, I can do instinctive all eternity long. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in this voluntary thing. So he hides himself behind his creation. And uh, so we're created as free will beings. Uh, I look up the word angel in the Bible. It appears 289 times. Never once does it say the angels love God. Hmm. It says they worship him, they glorify him, they praise him. They smite his enemies, like in Egypt, you know, the plagues. They yeah. uh, uh, deliver his messages, like to Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? And they're ministers under the earth of salvation. They're really, really smart and really, really powerful, but they're not made in the image of God. And Jesus did not die on the cross for angels. They are hmm. beings created for a purpose. What's our purpose? I mean, we're not very strong. We're not very smart. Um you look up the Bible verses, it's love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because he has sent his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. Uh, Jesus rises from the dead. Peter, do you love me? We're beings created with, with the capacity to love God. It's not instinctive. We have a choice. And um, so so he creates us as free will beings, hides himself so that we have out of the eye. And the same hiding of himself that allows us to have free will necessitates that we have faith. But then the third thing is he's just. He can't help but he's just, which means he has to judge every sin. Which means if he, even if he does all that and we step out of line one time, he's got to judge us. Because if God does not judge a sin, by, by default he's giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to one sin one time, he denies his just nature. He denies himself. He ungods himself. He's kicked out of heaven. And he's not going to get kicked out of heaven. He's not going to deny him. And he is going to judge every sin. So he can never be loved back because of he creates free will beings and hides himself so we have free will, but who step on line has got to judge us. And so he came up with a plan. And the plan is his own son would become a man and die on the cross and pay for all of our sins. The lamb is God's plan to be able to love us without having to judge us. And um, there's more there. I put it in this book called Believe. But, um, you know, you can't study history in this timeline without thinking, OK, what happened before the timeline and what's going to happen after the timeline, uh, you, you have to see things from an internal perspective, and then it starts to come into focus. That's beautiful. Good grief. I think that, that's, that's a thesis that is often left out of a lot. But love, I think, really is the answer. Between us humans and between our relationship with God, I think if we can quiet all the noise— Stop all the, the whack-a-mole fear and just and get down to that base. I think love is the key. Yeah, I mean, it's the two qualities of God. He is just. He can't help. It's like a mathematical equation. You have constants and variables. And the constant is God is just. That'll never change. And that means he has to always judge every single sin. Because if he doesn't judge a sin, by default, he's giving consent to the sin. Mm -hmm. And if he gives consent to one sin one time, he's no longer just God. He denies himself. And he cannot deny himself. That's a constant in the equation. The variable is who takes the judgment, us or a substitute, <laughs> right? And Jesus is the substitute. And um, so, um, so Abraham and Isaac are going to the top of Mount Moriah. And Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice. We have the coals for the sacrifice. But where's the sacrifice? <laughs> and Abraham says, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. <laughs> and it has a double meaning. I'm trusting God, God will have a ram up in the bush. But the others, God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's what happened. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in the plan of redemption that was hidden from ages. It says, if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. It was a hidden plan. The apostle Paul calls it the mystery of salvation. You know, And so uh, Jesus 
comes to earth, becomes the lamb, and takes the judgment for all of our sins. And if you think of it, okay, God's just. There's billions of us, and we've sinned. We deserve eternal damnation. How can one person sin pay for that? When Jesus is divine, and he experienced that day on the, the cross as if it was a thousand years. You know, you, you read the book of Revelation, it's confusing, but one thing seems clear. It's God that's pouring out the vials of judgment. Now, why is that? Well, this is the final judgment. So he's judging every sin, right? And so you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there was a sin way back when. You didn't judge it. Um, were you silent? Were you giving consent? To, is there a party of this unjust we didn't know about? Uh-uh. It says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody's going to question that God judged sin. Mm-hmm. But he's not going to have to do any more judging for the rest of eternity because this is the final judgment. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tell people I have a degree in accounting, so I like things that balance. An eternal being, Jesus, who's innocent, suffering for a finite, limited period of time, is equal to all of us finite, limited beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. An unlimited being suffering for a limited period of time is equal to all of us limited beings suffering for an unlimited period of time. And Jesus is the only one that could have done it. And out of love for the Father, not a love for you and me, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He took the judgment of a just God and rose from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. This way you and I can approach this universe-creating, omnipotent, all-powerful, and all-just God and not have to worry about being judged because we're approaching him through the Lamb that took the judgment in our place. So the Lamb is God's idea to be able to love us without having to judge us. Mm-hmm. So he can enjoy us and we can enjoy him for the rest of eternity. We can love him and he can love us and he doesn't have to worry about judging. He can maintain his nature as a just God. <laughs> but all that judgment went on Jesus and he took the judgment in our place. And, you know, it says uh, a thousand years with the Lord is as yesterday. So God the Father will always remember Jesus's death on the cross as if it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. It'll always be fresh in his mind, right? A thousand years to the Lord is as yesterday. So um, anyway, uh, so we, we talked history, we talked crisis, some depressing <laughs> stuff. Uh, but we, when you see it in the context of a, a God's divine plan, it's like, okay, crises are an opportunity to push people to a decision-making moment. And every generation has crises, and the people that are alive are pushed toward this decision-making moment. And it's like you have a freshman chemistry class, you have a beaker with a solution and a professor pours in a catalyst that causes a reaction mm-hmm. and some stuff precipitates and gets heavy and settles to the bottom of the beaker and other stuff gets effervescent and bubbly and floats to the top of the beaker. So the time period we're living in is our solution in the beaker. The crises of our time period is the catalyst is poured in. And some people's response is going to precipitate and drop out, run away and hide and deny their faith and and even take the mark of the beast, right? Other people's response to the crisis is to get effervescent, bubbly, 
like the early church when they were persecuted, they prayed for boldness. They're like, okay, God, there's a crisis. Where do you need me? That's where we need to be right there. <laughs> you know, historically, Christians have run toward the plagues. They're like, you know, help me. I spoke in this one church. It was like a Mennonite church up in like Pennsylvania. And these little, you know, women with their little buns on their hair, you know how they do the hair with the yeah, little of bonnets. Um, and she was telling me she's that they're getting ready to go over to Syria. I go, there's a war in Syria. They're killing people. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah. We're going to minister to the refugees. I was like, but you could get killed. She there goes, oh, go. yeah. And they, they already showed us a video of the ISIS coming into a Syrian village and getting this Christian guy. And they're saying, deny Christ or we're going to chop your head off. And so he denies Christ. They chop his head off anyway. And then they chuckle and walk away. And she says, they show us this video because we know going over there, we might die and we're not going to deny Jesus no matter what. I'm like, these are like real Christians, right? That's strong. And this I love is historically, it. Christians have always run to the need and always run to help out. You know, Samaritan's Purse, Operation Rescue. I mean, they're just immediately, where's the need? We're there. Hmm. You know, I was on the airplane just flying back from New Jersey and there was a Calvary Chapel Church and they were sending a rescue team to uh, the areas of Florida where the hurricane had destroyed but it's just people on their own just saying, okay, we're going to minister at this time of crisis. And so so the, the time period we're living in, there's a crisis. And some people's response is to think selfishly. And other people's response is to think selflessly. Say, God, okay, where do you need me? I might die in the process, but I'm already dead. My life is here with Christ and God. And I'm here as long as he needs me. You know, And I'm going to spend eternity with him in heaven, not because I'm good enough, but because I trust in Jesus that he was good enough to take all the judgment I deserve upon himself. Can't beat that. I love it. <laughs> I love it, Bill. Mr. Federer, how can we best uh, find you, support you, get those books that you mentioned? I know there's so much more we can talk about, but uh, how can people find you? Oh, you're kind. Um, my website is AmericanMinute.com. AmericanMinute.com. Uh, the new book is called Believe, and um, wrote it together with my wife. And then uh, another book called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And it's the one that talks about the crises and so forth. Uh, and another one on this uh, concept is called Who is the King in America? Hmm. And it's the people, right? Um, we're not, we're a bottom-up form of government versus top-down. So, so AmericanMinute.com. I also send out a daily email. Of course, it doesn't go out every day, um, but uh, goes out quite often. But it's something that happened in American history and gives you some indicators of how it can apply to what's going on today. That sounds wonderful. Well, if you'll hang out for about 30 seconds, I'll close up and say goodbye to you off there here. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Well, folks, if you missed any of that, if you just want to listen to it again, I recommend it. I highlight it. Recommend it. Rewind this. Anomicage.com is where you can find everything me. Today's show, the video, the audio, and of course, all the past shows as well. The full shows as well as those shorter information breakdown segments that I do several times a week. All that and so much more can be found at anomicage.com. As I always say, you can't do everything, but you can do something. So please try to get out there and do your part and make that difference. Be safe, and I'll be seeing you sooner than later in the Anomic Age. Thank you for listening to the Anomic Age, a John Age project. 
For past shows, further info, and to comment, go to anomicage.com. That's A-N-O-M-I-C-A-G-E dot com. Till next time, thank you for listening to The Anomic Age.